And every book is important in the Bible. This one holds a pretty unique place in setting forth the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which became the pattern not only for the whole of the Old Testament, but in many ways the New Testament as well. So the first chapter dealt with Israel as a nation and what they were going through in their oppression. And in chapter 2, we focus on the person of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned 
because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we come to this word, that we may be gripped with it, that we may be changed by it. Lord, that we may come to worship you in new ways because of this word that you set before us. Oh, bless it, Lord, to our hearts. We rest in your spirit to do this for us, even now, for your glory and honor. Amen. One of the most uh, difficult things in our lives is to have that sense of abandonment, to have the sense that God is nowhere to be found, uh, that we don't understand what he's doing. He's, his ways totally confuse us. We are devastated. Or sometimes it's even a small thing, and we think, really? Really? You couldn't do this one thing? You know, every kind of thing from gigantic to small can become the occasion of our wondering where in the world is God. And this introduces our first point this morning, which is the irony of God's salvation. We're going to look at the irony of God's salvation, then the pattern of God's salvation, then response to God's salvation, and finally, the identity or identity in God's salvation. But first, irony of God's salvation. And there is so much irony here in chapter 2. Let me just go over some of them. What's supposed to be the medium of death, that is water, that the Hebrew children, as we learned in chapter 1, are being thrown into the Nile, now becomes the medium of life. That's one of the ironies here. And these are all purposeful with the writer. He, Pharaoh spares the daughters and kills the sons, but it is the daughters that then act to save the Savior himself, right? Then his, there's the irony that actually his mother does obey the orders to put her son in the river, but not quite the way Pharaoh thought, all right? She puts him safely in a little box where he might be cared for, he might continue to be nursed, and then perhaps taken at home at night. And they didn't have a plan B or C. It was just, for now, let's keep him safe in the reeds by uh, the edge of the, of the river. A further, fourth irony, a member of Pharaoh's own family. Pharaoh, who gave the order for the children to be killed, a member of Pharaoh's own family saves this child. Fifthly, then, there's the compassion of an unbeliever on this child and the use of God of the compassion of this unbeliever and the celebration in her being included in this history for her real love and compassion for this child. That's part of what saved him. Sixthly, the saving of the very person who will deliver Israel and will be used to bring down Egypt. What an irony that he is brought into the very house of Pharaoh. 
The irony of a royal royalty following the advice of a slave girl. The great irony that she is paying the mother to nurse her child. <laughs> that she would have done by for free, of course. But now the great irony that she is paying her uh, to nurse her own child. Some look this at this as a precursor of the uh, way the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians as they left uh, Egypt. A further one is that he is now going to be educated as an Egyptian leader, this one. We're told in Acts 7 in Stephen's speech that he became mighty in words and deeds before anything happened, uh, before he came out and uh, saw the Egyptian beating uh, an Israelite. He was mighty in words and deeds in Egypt uh, as this prince. And then the name, withheld, withheld the name, normally right when a child is born, his name is given, but that name is withheld until the end when he's named by her. And this name is ironic because the name Moses, this is what it sounds like in Hebrew, means to draw him out of the water, and that's what Moses will be used to do, drawing Israel out of the water of the Sea uh, of Reeds later. And so irony from beginning to end, uh, that this is um, he's finally given the name that marks him as the one who will deliver uh, God's people. And so God here is using the weakest of people uh, this mother of Israel, the sister herself, who so wisely probably noticed that the princess was having compassion on the child and show appeared just at the right moment with just the right suggestion. All of this, of course, coming from God. God works through people who have no obvious power. God works through people who have no obvious power. He doesn't need your power. He doesn't need your strength. He claims this in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, not many powerful, not many wise, but he's chosen the weak things to shame the wise. That's a, a theme in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul himself having to be humbled by his physical weakness in 2 Corinthians 12. God saying, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the thing I want you to learn in this, in this uh, passage here is that we have hope in every circumstance. And God meets you right where you are and he works in the very circumstances that are plaguing you. You see, he doesn't remove him from this. They're supposed to be thrown in water and so God uses the water, you know. He uses the circumstance to bring about this amazing training of Moses in the house of Pharaoh. And yet the, the effort, the desire of Pharaoh was that he would be killed. And there's a parallel here in that Satan always desires your demise, Always desires to destroy you. He wants every circumstance to part you from God's grace. Every circumstance to separate you from the joy of giving and loving others. He wants to push you into self-pity. He wants to push you into despair. 
And yet, God takes the very things that happens to you and he grows you in them. Because his purpose for you, as he, he's, he claims and promises in Romans 8.28, is that everything will work together for your good of being conformed to Christ. So it's a losing battle for Satan. No matter what he brings against you, no matter what your circumstance, God takes it, he uses the very thing, and he forms you. He forms you. He forms you. And this is a wonderful place to go and think how many ironic things happened here of turning power upside down. We are not subject to anything in this world except uh, to God himself. So he who was supposed to be thrown into the Nile actually went on to the Nile and was brought to the front door of Pharaoh. And so Paul says of us in 1 Corinthians 3... That everything is yours. The world, life, death, present, future, everything is yours. By that, Paul means everything has become your servant for your good. Everything. God has rendered it so. That's why everything works together for your good. And this is a great place to rehearse that and see it working out in the very life of Moses and think, that's exactly what God does for me. He is always saving me, always transforming me, always making me more and more a person who will manifest the loving grace of God to others. And it doesn't matter what happens to us if, as we trust him. Nothing can stop that. We're walk, always walking in that sense, no matter how devastating and broken we can be in a given circumstance. From another perspective, perspective, we're always walking in his triumph, in his salvation. So there's the irony of God's salvation. And there will be a beautiful irony in your life as well. A beautiful, constant irony. That things shouldn't have worked that way, but they did. You shouldn't have been able to love, but you did. You shouldn't have been able to change, but you did by God's grace. Because that's his glorious sovereign irony. Secondly, though, we have the pattern of God's salvation in this uh, passage. And it's found first in Moses, who becomes a great pattern, not only recalling patterns in Genesis, but looking forward to Israel itself. And then we'll see how this plays out with Christ and, and us. Uh, the statement where it says he was a fine child is a little hidden in the way it's translated. She basically says she saw that he was good, and that recalls Genesis 1, and God looked and saw that what he made was good. It's a purposeful recalling of the goodness of God's creation. And seeing that he was good, strong, healthy child all the more, because uh, so many children were lost in childbirth, all the more she desired to do everything to preserve this child. Um, and then the, the word basket here is really the word for box or chest. Okay, uh, Papyrus, this uh, cypress papyrus plant stalks kind of like uh, bamboo. Okay, a little smaller, but kind of like bamboo. They grew in the shallows, and they actually built ships with this with papyrus. Right? They also used it for paper, but they could build ships with these uh, these uh, plants. And 
what's interesting is the only other place where this word for box or chest is used is the Ark of Noah. The box or chest of Noah, as it's called. And so this is a purposeful recalling of Noah's Ark. So that Noah and Moses went through a watery ordeal. Both were on this ark uh, that was treated with bitumen, as it says there too. They both were brought to safety as others perished in the water. And they both were the means of God's creating a new people. And so in this sense, this incident of Moses in in the uh, reeds is given cosmic proportions, Right? It's, it's as though things are in, as things were in chaos at the beginning of the world, as things were in chaos in Genesis 6 when God had to bring the flood, so things are in chaos with God's people. They are under oppression. They're being destroyed. And he is, uh, true life on earth is being embodied in God's people who are being threatened. And as he passes through the waters of the Nile, this anticipates then Israel's passage through the sea. As we said, the name Moses means to draw out or even the one who draws out. So Moses will draw all of Israel through and out of the water. And so he was amid the reeds and it's the reed sea that will be separated, the word suf in, in Hebrew. So there's this purposeful tie-in with Genesis. As God created the world and life and recreated it through Noah, he's bringing new life to the world, new life to God's people here through Moses. Uh, as the world was born and reborn, so in Moses it's being reborn. He's given life to Moses and will give life to Israel. He's bringing life to his people through Moses. So it represents, as one is written, not only the birth and deliverance of one man, but it's symbolic of the birth and deliverance of the entire nation. And then in the next section, his conflict, conflict with the uh, Egyptian and flees into the wilderness. This is just like Israel, who later will be in conflict and will have to be Uh, will be chased by Pharaoh as well. He goes into the wilderness as they go into the wilderness. He meets God at Sinai as they will meet God at Sinai. So see, Moses' life here is a pattern. It's a preview of what will happen for Israel itself. And he also even anticipates God's actions. As it says there in chapter 2 and 11 following, he sees what's going on. It's the same word that's used later in this chapter where it says God sees the uh, suffering of Israel. And, And that's repeated several times of God seeing Israel. And when he encounters the Egyptian and strikes him, that's the same word that's used again and again where God strikes down Egypt with the the firstborn and finally striking them down, uh, bringing them down in the sea itself. Even when he saves the daughters uh, of Jethro or Ruel, as he said here, or uses the word help and deliver in in verses 17 and 19, these are used of God's salvation of of Israel uh, from Egypt. So again and again, he is pictured as... Israel, And he becomes the pattern for Israel. And what God does for Moses, then he does for Israel. And I know it's, it's easy for many of you to see that this is what God has done in a more intimate way with us. As Christ has, he, he died our death on the cross. He was raised and that was 
our resurrection. And he gets an inheritance that becomes our inheritance. And so when you see the whole life of Christ, you have to see that he is the new people of God. He forms the new Israel. He is the replacement Israel. And that's why the people of God are not collected around the physical people of Israel, but now they're collected around the new Israel, Jesus. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, this constitutes the new people in Jesus Christ. And we have our whole life in Christ. We have a more vital connection to Christ than they did to Moses. Because even though it says that they were joined to Moses, many of them uh, disobeyed and fell in the wilderness. But our connection to Jesus is vital and real and through the Holy Spirit. So real that Paul can say in Galatians 2... That it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So that my life is made one, in a sense, with the life of Christ. That doesn't mean that Darwin's personality is no longer here. I'm just completely put to the side. I don't matter anymore. It's, It's a creative way to say, it is no longer just Darwin. Okay, It is no longer just me. And that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. Because we don't need more, just me. But it is the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit that is in me. And now that life is manifesting itself. As Paul says, I am a temple of God. You are a temple of God. And you, because of that, will be manifesting the glory of God. So everything that you see that happens in Christ... You and, and so much of what you see happen in his very life, you must receive it as standing with him and in him. When you see the father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, you get to place yourself in Christ and say, because I'm in Christ, he now is well pleased with me. He shouldn't be in a sense that I have sinned and I don't deserve this. I am put, though, in Christ so that I can hear those precious words. And now the Holy Spirit that was given to Jesus, that I belong to Jesus, so I have the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given that to me. Everything that is in Christ, he won it for us. And so that astounding language in Romans 8 when he describes us as the children of God, and he says, if we're children then we're fellow heirs with Christ. Just, it's natural, right? For children, then we, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. That's really the language of 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, all things are yours. Why are they yours? Because Christ has inherited them. He has won them by his blood and by his resurrection. And if you belong to Jesus, everything that Jesus has belongs to you. So we must live in connection with the whole of the life of Christ. Even as Moses presented this pattern for Israel, Christ is our pattern. And the most glorious end of it, of course, is in 1 Corinthians 15 where uh, Paul says, If Christ was raised, then we will be raised. He's just the first fruits, but when he comes, all the rest of us will be raised as well. 
So we are headed to resurrection. We are headed to our glorious inheritance because Christ has run the pattern before us. It has to happen. It will happen for each one of you. And so you have the capability all the more to live out this new grace in your life because Christ has set the course for you. And so the writer of Hebrews can say, looking to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Look to him. Look to him. Let him be your total pattern. Not only your example, but your constant resource that you might be conformed to his beauty and his goodness. What a prospect that you can show the beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the whole reason he gave himself. So there's this irony of God's salvation that ensures your salvation in every circumstance. And the enemy cannot stop it any more than Pharaoh could have stopped this happening. With every effort he was making to stop it. And look what happened. One of your own daughters is raising the one who will bring you down. And that's how God constantly trumps Satan in your life, in my life, in the life of the church worldwide. And then the pattern of God's salvation, which ensures that because we belong to Christ, uh, we will partake of that salvation that he has uh, gone before and established for us. Then I go now to, and there's so much in this passage that in in detail that we just can't cover. But I do want to touch on Acts 7 with Stephen's uh, uh, inclusion of some of these events. Uh, Stephen includes this uh, encounter that Moses has with the Egyptian. And the way Stephen uses it, though, is surprising. And I don't want us to miss this. I want to apply what he says. Stephen is preaching to the Jews. And Stephen is preaching using example after example of how the Jews have refused the grace of God, how they've refused the goodness of God and the word of God. And he finally ends his sermon after this whole pattern of all the ways they've done this to say, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And even now you're resisting the one who has come to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, Stephen was stoned to death, as you know, as many of you know. Well, the way he treats this passage of the Egyptian, he says that uh, in, in uh, his treatment of it, that Moses came to rescue. Uh, he, he puts it this way. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And... It says the next day when he was talking to his fellow Hebrew, he was trying to reconcile them. So here's the word of reconciliation that was coming. And they rebuffed his effort. Who are you? And this is amazing that they said this because he had tried to rescue a fellow Hebrew. He had had compassion. He had risked his life to rescue this Hebrew. In the words of of, uh, Hebrews 11, that's the point where he threw away his privileges with the Pharaoh, where he turned his back on all that he had known and identified with the people of Israel. And 
at that point, why didn't they appreciate? He, he, Stephen says he thought that they would recognize that he is the one who would redeem them, but they didn't. So Stephen is using this as a way to show even in that circumstance, you Jews began, have always refused the word of God. You've always refused the leadership of God. Even when Moses right there was trying to bring reconciliation, you rejected him. And of course, over and over in the wilderness, Moses was rejected and the prophets were rejected. And finally, Christ himself was rejected. And the point for us is that we must not reject the word of God that comes to us. We must not be that stiff-necked people. And here's some things to ask ourselves. Am I pliable to God's word? Am I eager for God's word? Does God's word, is it bringing me hope? Is it bringing me joy? Is it enabling me to trust? Am I moved by God's word, gripped by God's word? Am I encouraged by God's word? Am I open to God's word? Am I open that God's word search me and convict me? And just as important, as I, am I open to God's promise that takes me out of my self-pity and my panic, panic and my anxiety, which I love to hold on to and live with? Am I willing to embrace the promise of God that sets me free from myself so that I can give myself away to others? Or do I like to hold on to what I have? You see, these are ways to ask, am I becoming a stiff-necked person? And Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, who are not necessarily falling into being stiff-necked, though it's a form of it, but they're falling into idolatry. And he warns them, he says, look, Look, the people of Israel were baptized into Moses in the sea. And they ate the spiritual food that was Christ. The rock that was following them was Christ. And he said, but most of them died in the wilderness. Now, he's not saying to the Corinthians, most of you are going to die in the wilderness. But he is giving them that warning. Don't act as though this could never happen to you. Don't act as though you're just fine and nothing you don't ever have to make an effort or try or ask yourself anything. We have the privilege in the light of what Stephen says to call ourselves or for God's grace to work in us and save us from being a stiff-necked people. And that's the only way I'll be saved from being stiff-necked. <laughs> it's by God's grace. It's by his salvation. It's by being changed and moved by the love of God, by his grace and mercy. That's what changes me. That's what makes me pliable. That's what makes me eager to hear this word because I hear it as the, a gracious word of this God. So, the irony of God's salvation, the pattern of God's salvation, and then what is the response to God's salvation. And I'll just mention this in the end. The identity, identity in God's salvation. You have Moses... From Hebrews 11, it says that he identified with the people of God. Listen to this from 
Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here is Moses identifying with God's people, separating himself out for all the wealth, the comforts, the glory, the majesty of Egypt, saying the riches of Christ were a greater wealth. Speaking in New Testament terms here, of course. But the riches of God's mercy, the riches of having God and being with him, that's the treasure I want. And he so identified with God's people and gave all of this up. You think of the incredible identity of Christ with us. It's described in Philippians 2. Though he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped and hold on to. And I'm going to hold on to my safety, my well-being, so to speak. But he poured himself out even to the point of death on the cross. Think of Christ's identity with us. Knowing that his identity with us to take on our debt would mean his death. And he willingly did it. He willingly looked at all of my debt and your debt and what it would cost him to be with us. What it would cost him to own us. What it would cost him to have us as his treasure. And then it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. But it's real. It's true. That's the love of God for us. He would identify with everything and bear it away from us. Even though we deserve it. And now, here's our great glorious challenge from Hebrews as well. He pictures Jesus... the writer of Hebrews, as like the scapegoat that was cast away from the people of God, regarded as trash and and separated out of the city because Christ was crucified outside the city. And so he was regarded then as just a piece of dung, a piece of trash thrown away outside of the city. He says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, Therefore, let us go to him outside the gate and bear the reproach he endured. Isn't that wonderful, noble, glorious call? Go out and situate yourself with Christ who is bearing the reproach of the world, the hatred of the world. And you count identity with Christ to be greater treasure than anything else in this world. That is upside down thinking. And it's faith alone that would do that. It's faith alone that would identify with what could get you killed. What could make you lose everything in this world. But you have to look to the one who identified with you. Who has borne your reproach. And come and say, oh Lord, my treasure, my glory, my beauty. Because if I could know you, and if I could in some way manifest that beauty... That nobility in my life, that would be the greatest treasure in the world. We get to belong to him. We get to be like him. Let us pray.